Cells are able to break down their own organelles through a process called autophagy. In this episode, we discuss a novel autophagy pathway researched by our guest today. Our guest today is a postdoctoral research at the University of Dundee. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Alex Agrotis. Thanks, Fraser. Thanks very much for inviting me today to talk to you. Thank you for joining us today. So I just want to start with um, your interest in science and autophagy. And uh, where did that come from? Um, well, I was always quite interested in science, um, actually. So when I was really young, I um, had some fun experimenting with grapes um, in the garden, turning them into raisins. Um, so I would... Uh, leave the grapes out then I'd run around the side of the house for about 10 or 20 seconds and then when I'd come back they'd be turned into raisins Um, so I never like got to observe this process as it happened but it seemed to work when I sort of went away and came back Um, so so that kind of that kind of thing I always enjoyed when I was young Uh, and then going through school um, going through school yeah I was reasonably good at science I guess um, and uh, yeah I was kind of uh, the subjects that I was best at was always kind of switching and then at some point it settled on biology, biology and chemistry um, and then yeah so I decided to com- combine the two for my undergraduate studies which was in biochemistry at the University of Bristol um, and then I've just kind of been going with the flow ever since then. Had some research experience during my undergraduate at King's College London. Um, and then, uh, yeah, became interested in autophagy in the final year of my undergraduate. Really interesting. And But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of... I found chemistry at sort of undergraduate level quite complicated, difficult to get my head around. Um, I think what I liked about cell biology is there's lots of stuff you can see. So you see with your own eyes when something changes in the cell. But with uh, with cell biology, you're seeing things happen and it's on a scale that you can't really imagine and that kind of thing. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And uh, moving towards sort of the work you've done recently looking at autophagy um there one thing that especially for uh undergrads is that i don't think it's very well explained sort of there's how many sort of autophagy pathways there are um so could you uh, give a brief description of sort of how many different autophagy pathways there are and uh what what makes them different in terms of the sort of things they degrade in the cell 
Yeah, sure. Well, uh, maybe it's a good idea if I actually explain what autophagy is Absolutely. to begin with. Okay, so autophagy, um, it literally translates in from Greek and it means self-eating. Um, so it's the process that happens inside many different types of cell um, where they begin to digest their own material. So the cell basically forms these uh, new organelles. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> the cell uh, forms these new organelles which contain parts of the cell. And then these um, fuse with lysosomes and that degrades the contents inside the organelle, which is called an autophagosome. Um, so this process is really important. Um, so if you have mammals that can't do autophagy, they have like serious problems. So depending on the, the gene that's disrupted, that's involved in autophagy, the animals might not survive uh, in the womb, or if they do survive in the womb, they might die shortly after birth because a lot of uh, newborn animals, they actually go through a period of starvation after they're born. And during that starvation period, their cells are relying on autophagy to, to keep them alive. Um, so yeah, autophagy is a really important process. And it's also implicated in diseases such as cancer and neurodegeneration. Um, so when I talk about autophagy, I'm talking about the main, the, the most studied type of autophagy, which is macro autophagy. So yeah, when you say autophagy, you're using, usually referring to that form by default. Uh, there's also two other types of autophagy called micro autophagy, which is the invagination of the lysosome directly to take up cellular material. So you get very small vesicles forming on the lysosome. And then there's chaperone mediated autophagy, which is when uh, proteins are sent to the lysosome directly. But then with, within the field of macro autophagy, which is what I'm most interested in, uh, you have yeah many different types depending on whether you're degrading selectively parts of the cell, so you could be just degrading mitochondria, and then that would be called mitophagy, or you could be degrading just the ER, so that would be called ERphagy. Um, and you have uh, yeah de degradation of protein aggregates, that would be agrophagy. So yeah, you could I could go on basically. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of autophagy, uh, there's different types depending on what needs to be degraded, basically. And But then there's also a more general type, which is happening during starvation. Moving on towards sort of this paper itself. Uh, so we've discussed a bit about the sort of background and the of, of behind it in terms of sort of what you're studying. But how, what, what did this... Um, why is this paper important to you and what where did it come in your research career um so yeah the paper i wanted to talk about today was um, a paper that's published in journal of Bio 
Journal of Biological Chemistry in 2019. And it's where we show that um, one of the proteins involved in autophagy, which is called LC3. So this is a protein that's shaped a bit like ubiquitin um, and follows a ubiquitin-like pathway to become attached to the autophagosome membrane. Uh, so LC3, before we studied, before we did this uh, study, was known to only associate with the lipids covalently. In this paper, we found that LC3 can also modify proteins in a ubiquitin-like manner. Um, so when we did this study, we didn't understand the relevance and we weren't sure if it had any real links to autophagy in general. Um, but it was, it was just basically an observation that, yeah, LC3 attaches to other proteins in the cell and therefore it could be considered a new type of post-translational modification. So would, uh, so would this, uh, would this tagging class as a chaperone uh, type autophagy or, or because it associates with the autophagosome, would it be the macro autophagy or a bit of both? Um, so yeah, this is a LC three is a protein involved in macro autophagy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just more, it's just more where it's like you because it's ubiquitin like. That's nothing to do with ubiquitin's function. It's just it's similar to the shape of ubiquitin, the same sort of features. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it has a, a similar kind of fold to ubiquitin. It does have some additional structural features that aren't in ubiquitin. That's two N-terminal alpha helices. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, just because it shapes like ubiquitin doesn't implicate it necessarily in the ubiquitin pathway. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, really, we, we didn't have any idea what um, this modification was doing. And yeah, I say that the paper's linked to autophagy, but it's really just linked because we know this protein is involved in autophagy, like that's its main function. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's not necessarily an autophagy paper, but it's studying a, a protein involved in autophagy and then finding that it can modify other proteins in the cell. Perfect. Uh, so to go, to go into the paper itself, um, this is a really interesting paper. And the first thing, one of the first things did was to generate um, a, was to, sorry, was to find the substrates for the uh, LC3 protein by generating a, um, a, a mutant of it that wasn't able to be, if I understand correctly, wasn't able to be removed from its targets. Yeah, that's correct. So, so how did you go around, uh, sort of, how did you go around designing this uh, th this mutant, and what sort of things did it show you when you tested it in the in the, in the lab? Uh, yeah, nice ex explanation of, of that, Fraser. Um, so actually, interestingly, we discovered this mutant after we'd done the second half of the paper. So we thought <laughs> this is what happens inside. Sometimes you don't do things in the order there written in the paper. Uh, basically, we, we, we knew the second half of the paper, which is that LC3 attaches to other proteins when the deconjugation enzyme is missing, and deconjugation enzyme is HG4B. Uh, so we, we've done those experiments in the HG4B knockout cells. 
And then we thought, as a separate line of evidence for this hypothesis, it would be really cool if we had a mutant of LC3 that can't be deconjugated. And then you could express this in any cell type and then see what the targets are of LC3 protein modification. Um, and to make this mutant, we looked at how the same process had been done for ubiquitin uh, and SUMO, which is another ubiquitin type protein, a ubiquitin like protein. Um, so our, our base, we basically mutated similar residues. Um, we kind of looked at the structure of ubiquitin versus LC3. We found the position that is known if you mutate it in ubiquitin, it makes it fail to be deconjugated. Uh, and we, we kind of mimicked it in LC3, but it wasn't the exact mutation that we expected. We, we sort of tried a few next to each other. And then we found one which, uh, which worked and we saw the same pattern of LC3 attachment to other proteins in the cell as we'd seen in the HG4B knockout cells. Um, but we figured logically it looks better in the paper for that to come first and then valid validating the hypothesis in HG4B knockout cells. Absolutely. And so what, uh... So if that came sort of towards the end of your study, what was the what was the first thing you did um, to investigate your hypothesis, and uh, what technique did you use to um, and to find out and analyze it? So after I did this study, I was interested really in post translational modifications, post translational modifications in general. Um, and I wanted to explore the techniques that I used to study those in more detail, which is why I decided to move to Dundee and get a job at the MRC PPU. PPU stands for Protein Phosphorylation and Ubiquitylation Unit. Uh, so this is a department that's really experts in studying post-translational modifications. Um, so we do a lot of Western blotting in the PPU, but we also... Uh, use uh, more advanced techniques to study how proteins modify other proteins, um, for example, using proteomics. Uh, so this is an unbiased technique where you can look at the proteins in your sample and get a list of all the proteins that are there. And also like quantitative analysis, like how much of each protein there is. Whereas when you do a Western blot, you're really focusing on one protein at a time. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I was really interested to, to come to Dundee to study. Um, although I'm not working on the same project now, because uh, when you move to do a new postdoc, you generally choose a different topic. So I'm working on understanding the prososome now, which is another pathway for degrading proteins in the cell. So, and could you go a bit into what the protosome is? Um, is I remember from what I understand is that it is a specific. Uh, I don't know. If the, I don't know if it would be called an organelle that's that uh, breaks down proteins after being tagged. But does it refer to like a wider a range of uh, processes, or is it specifically the sort of the cylindrical? shape that where proteins get sent to yeah so the proteasome is a multi-protein complex um i don't think you would class it as an organelle because it's not really doesn't have a membrane it's it's actually much smaller than an organelle 
-hmm. It's a very large protein complex, um, but it's yeah, it wouldn't be classed as an organelle, I don't think, because there's um, there's quite a lot of protosomes in a single cell mm -hmm. um, in different locations. Yeah, essentially a large uh, barrel barrel shaped multi protein complex, um, which uh, ubiquitinated proteins are, are targeted to the protosome to be degraded. And uh, the protein that gets degraded by the protosome gets unfolded and then passes through the central chamber of the protosome where it gets chopped up by different protease subunits. Um, and yeah, you can think of the protosome as a bit like a paper shredder where you have uh, the protein going in the top, uh, being fed through the middle, in an energy dependent process and then being chopped up and then the remnants of the protein coming out the other end. Um, yeah, so when we talk about protosome, we're talking about you know a, a main pathway for degrading proteins in the cell. I think the majority of proteins in the cell get degraded via the protosome. A lot of the time as they're being made, if there's a, a mistake, protein doesn't fold properly then protosome will come along and degrade it. But then also you've got uh, ER-associated degradation where proteins are passed out of the endoplasmic reticulum to be degraded by the protosome. And yeah, protosomes in the nucleus as well. Uh, you have protosomes just all over the place. Um, Brilliant. Uh, and just to finally cap, cap this off, from the study that we've discussed today, what would you say is probably the, the, uh, the most important lesson you learned from it? Um, was it a result that you got? Was it the use of a technique? Or uh, was it sort of a way of looking at um, the, the, stu the stuff field of autophagy in a different way? Uh, so I think, yeah, it was, it was nice to discover something new that was kind of not, not necessarily just like a, a building on something else, but yeah, it's kind of separate line of research. Uh, it was also nice. It was a really satisfying project to work on because it was uh, kind of very definitive results and um, it was a very short paper. It was only a few figures. Uh, so I guess I learned that uh, you don't have to spend ages on a project to publish it. If you've got something good, you can piece it together and um, you don't have to know what, you don't have to be able to explain the finding if it's interesting enough, I guess. Because um, I could have gone down the avenue of spending another few years on this project and trying to understand what it's doing. But yeah, I guess that was the main thing is sometimes things go okay in publishing. <laughs> Absolutely, and I guess, <laughs> and I guess from 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 sort of what you've said, it's it. Kind of, I guess you can kind of sort of go down a sort of perfectionist route, where the paper you publish has to be, you know, every single possible question there is. But you kind of sort of need to take a step back and realize that you know this is important information, and this could be built on for me to either do build on to look at it further in a different study, um, and it means that by not taking too long you have more time for sort of other projects out there yeah exactly at some point during a 
during a project you'll hit sort of diminishing returns where mm -hmm. the more effort, you're putting in more effort and you're getting less out of it and it's nice to like work on a project where it's you're getting a lot out of it and then at the point where it becomes sort of repetitive and not much more that you're finding then you can move on to something else but yeah unfortunately in science it doesn't always work like that um but i think uh i think the general sort of culture might be changing towards publishing solid findings a bit more quickly especially now that we have preprints mm -hmm. uh, that's quite widely accepted now to post something as a preprint I mean, quite common now because uh, they've been mentioned, you know, many times in previous episodes. Uh, I always just assumed that they were a normal part of research, but from what you're saying, are they quite a new thing that has appeared as of recently? Uh, I think they sort of started becoming <coughs> preprints started becoming um, kind of uh, more visible about yes six or seven years ago and um yeah it's just taken off to almost become the norm now to post the preprint um it looks good on your cv if you have a preprint or if you're applying for a grant it's kind of a tangible output um but i think people are still um a little bit cautious about only posting something as a preprint when it's nearly ready to publish which is which is how it should be Mm -hmm. um, but a lot, like a lot of people will post them as the papers almost accepted and that kind of thing so it's not necessarily people are still a bit protective of their findings i think um but they have their reasons for doing that um, thousand citations <laughs> as a result i would just ignore that part but mm -hmm. yeah fantastic well um i'll let you get on um thank you again for uh participating